Charles Darwin was born as of tomorrow, 215 years ago, on February 12th, 1809. His birthday has come to be known as International Darwin Day. It's pretty good if you get an international uh, day named after you. It's this annual opportunity to celebrate the principles that guided his life, perpetual curiosity, scientific thinking, and a hunger for truth. These values resonate with our UU fourth principle of a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, as well as our fifth source of reason and the results of science. Darwin's theories of natural selection and common descent were among the greatest intellectual achievements of the 19th century. So it's a bit tragic that well into the 21st century, the creation versus evolution debate uh, continues in some quarters. One reason it's significant to celebrate Darwin Day in Unitarian Universalist congregations is that both sides of Darwin's family were in large part Unitarian. And while it's true that Darwin uh, was actually baptized in an Anglican church, he attended an Anglican boarding school, and was actually married by an Anglican priest, it's also the case that growing up, Charles and his siblings attended the Unitarian chapel with their mother. And the liturgy that was used in Darwin's wedding to Emma Wedgwood was adapted to, quote, suit the Unitarians. Some of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears were also among the earliest uh, religious leaders to embrace the paradigm-shifting implications of Darwin's discoveries, that we humans, we're not a little lower than the angels. We're a little higher than the apes with whom we share a common ancestor. In the wake of the Human Genome Project, we know now that at the DNA level, there is a 1.23% difference between humans and chimpanzees. Flipping that around, we humans and chimpanzees are 98.77% the same genetically. 98.77%. We humans are not uniquely superior creations. We're merely one evolved species among many, and we are deeply interconnected with the ecosystems and, and the other varied, varied forms of life on this one planet. Uh, as our UU Seventh Principle affirms, our invitation is to respect the interdependent web of all existence of which we are all a part. Denying our place within the animal kingdom and the larger natural world has contributed to we humans exploiting this incredible planet on which we find ourselves. But as the activist for climate justice, Wendell Berry, has put it, whether we and our politicians know it or not, nature is party to all of our deals and decisions. Nature has more votes, a longer memory, and a sterner sense of justice than we do. And Darwin Day is an annual reminder urging us to recalibrate our place in the grand scheme of things, uh, how we think of ourselves, and to do it from a more scientific, ecological, and evolutionary point of view. As part of my own preparation for Darwin Day, I've been reading two books. The first is uh, The Song of the Cell, uh, An Exploration of Medicine and the New Human by Siddhartha Mukherjee, which was named uh, as one of the New York Times' top 100 books of, 2000, of 2022. This author, a professor of medicine at Columbia University, has been on my radar for a few years now. His previous book, The Gene, An Intimate History, was named one of the New York Times' top 100 books of 2016. His book before that, The Emperor of Maladies, a biography of cancer, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011. That dude's like on a roll, like, you know, like three books in a row. Have any of you read any of his books? All right, quite a few, quite a few hands. 
The second book is titled The Master Builder, How the New Science of the Cell is Rewriting the Story of Life. It's by Alfonso Arias, who's a professor at the University of Barcelona in Spain. Yes, I know it's like Barcelona, but... You're with me. Anyway, this sermon, if the sermon leaves you curious to learn more, I'd recommend beginning with uh, Arius's book. It's shorter and more accessible. Uh, Mukherjee's book is really great. He writes beautifully, but his book is both longer and quite a bit more technical, which I know some of you are like, sign me up because you're science nerds, but uh, that's, that's kind of how those two books relate. So as we prepare to uh, consider the insights of science for our lives today, I want to first invite you to hear a poem. Uh, It's titled, Who Beats My Heart? Who Beats My Heart? It's by an interfaith chaplain named Alfred Lamont. It's from his book, Wounded Bud, Poems for Meditation. He writes, I just can't keep track of my atoms. I don't even know the number of cells in my fingertips. I have no idea how to command my molecules. At night when I'm sleeping, who breathes me? Who beats my heart? And how much do I owe them? When I meditate, who orders my battery of neurons into synchronous firing? Who whispers, chill out to my adrenal gland? And when I wake in the morning, who shouts to my pituitary, less water, more fire? I asked a scientist to explain all this, but he couldn't even measure the light years in a single atom. I asked a guru, but he just mumbled something in a lost language with lots of M's. How do you expect me to balance my checkbook when I can't even count my electrons or tell you who is it that performs this body of miracles? So much is happening all the time with our bodies, with no required conscious willpower on our part. One of the invitations of science is to take a step back to observe and to try to gain greater insights into ourselves and to one another. How many of you loved taking biology courses? How many of you hated taking biology courses? All right, somewhere in between? Okay, okay. Uh, I enjoyed biology one in high school, but I fell in love with AP Biology 2. I loved that course. It was very demanding, but I found it riveting. In college, I gave serious thought to majoring in biology, but I ended up being seduced by religion and philosophy. In particular, I remember being entranced by cell biology, the the structure of cells, the, the story of cell division, mitosis and meiosis, and so much more. But also just coming to see the whole universe that's invisible to our naked eye that comes alive under a microscope. In Mukherjee's words, every time I see a cell under a microscope, refulgent, glimmering, alive, I relive the thrill of seeing my first cell, like eyes looking back at me. I whispered to myself, and then to my astonishment one day, I saw a T-cell move. Deliberately, purposefully, seeking out an infected cell that it might purge and kill. And I said to myself, it's alive. A few weeks ago in a sermon on what's going on, you know, what is it that's going on with aliens and UFOs and UAPs, part of what we considered was the awe-inspiring images of distant galaxies from the James Webb Space Telescope. But at the other end of the spectrum, it's amazing to discover 
equally as much awe and wonder in the microscopic world revealed by today's most advanced microscopes. I'll give you just a few examples. The hand of a gecko embryo. A close-up of a butterfly proboscis, the appendage that comes out of their heads. A plankton. Microscopic organisms themselves are often stunningly beautiful. A rotifer, it's a phylum of microscopic animals. Or the optic nerve head of a rodent. <laughs> yeah, it's the most beautiful thing for a rodent I've ever seen. Uh, it's an amazing world down there. And this handful of photos can help you understand why a microbiologist might challenge us that we humans are just nice looking luggage to carry bacteria around the world. If you're curious to see more images along these lines, one good starting point, Nikon has an annual small world photomicography competition. And you do not have to remember the word photomicography. If you just Google Nikon small world, it'll, it'll pop right up. And since it's been almost um, two decades since I did a deep dive into cell biology, I appreciated the reminder from these two books uh, of how important it can be to reflect on life from a microscopic point of view. In Mukherjee's words, we all began as single cells. Our genes are different, albeit marginally. The way our bodies develop are different. Our life experiences uh, vary widely. And yet, despite all the waning gaps between our uh, bodies and experiences, we all share two features. We arose from single-celled embryos, and second, from that cell came multiple cells that populate your body and mine. We are built from the same material units. Mukherjee shares that out of all the immense research he has done into cells, there are two representative quotes that he has pinned to the billboard in his office. Um, both quotes are from around 1845 and are by Rudolf Virchow. He's the father of modern pathology, or as his colleagues affectionately called him, the Pope of Medicine. On the side are some of his hand-drawn illustrations. The first of the two quotes is about the importance of the cell as a unit of life. Uh, life, as this is the quote, life in general is cell activity. That's pretty challenging, right? Life in general is cell activity. Beginning with the use of the microscope in the study of the organic world, far-reaching studies have shown that all plants and all animals, this is that, right, all plants, all animals are in the beginning a cell within which other cells develop to give rise again to new cells together and undergo transformation to new forms and finally to constitute a new amazing organism. The commonality of cells as essential to all plants and all animals is a reminder of how deeply connected we all are to the Darwinian tree of life. So that's the, I know this is really hard to see, but it's like a lot to say, right? The tree of life at the beginning and we humans are at the, the top right, but we're all, we're all connected. It's all, I know it's a little bit of a mixed metaphor, right? We talk about common descent, but then the tree of life goes up, but like, you're with me, right? Uh, and whereas the first quote was about the centrality of cells for life, the second quote is a reminder that cells are also the locus of disease. So uh, here's the second quote. Every disease depends on an alternation of a larger or smaller number of cellular units in the living body. 
Every pathological disturbance, every therapeutic effect finds its ultimate explanation only when it is possible to designate the specific living cellular elements involved. Understanding cells is central, not only to how we have come to be alive, but for so much that goes wrong with us biologically. Overall, if I have to name the central challenge of these two books and kind of the through line that connects them, is to correct for this kind of prevailing overemphasis on genes. In 1953, Watson and Crick published their model of the double helix of DNA, and in the decades since, references to genetics have become ubiquitous, certainly much more so than references to cells. Uh, parents will say of their child, it's in her genes. Uh, CEOs will say about their workplace, it's in our DNA as a company. Genetic testing sites like 23andMe and Ancestry.com have become wildly popular. So genetics is undeniably important, but everything doesn't boil down to genes. The importance of cells in regard to genes is revealed in one of the simplest definitions of what a cell is. A cell is an autonomous living unit that acts as a decoding machine for a gene. A decoding machine for a gene. And here's where Arius' metaphor of cells as the master builder comes into play. As important as DNA is, thinking of our genes as an instruction manual is too simplistic. Instruction manuals show us the order in which to do things, where to do them, what to use to accomplish each step. DNA actually does nothing of the sort. Genes are, if anything, more like a blueprint. In Arius' words, to build an organism, an organism like any of us, any plant, any animal, as to build a house, you need not only a blueprint, but also skilled workers who will interpret the design and assemble the tools and raw materials needed to execute it. In the construction of an organism, cells are the master builders. For DNA to be meaningful, it needs a cell. Without a cell, a genome cannot express any of the information that it holds. It takes cells to define what we are and how we are made. The subtext of Arius' book is that apparently a decent number of cell biologists are pretty jealous and angry about all the attention geneticists have been getting the past few decades. Uh, there's some real pent-up resentment and simmering angle channeled especially through this of the two books. I don't know how widespread that view is. Some of you that are more on the inner circles of science can let me know more. And honestly, I don't have a dog in that fight. Uh, I'm just grateful to both of these books for reminding me, of, uh, reminding me of the beauty and the insights that can come from reflecting on life from a microscopic point of view. In that spirit, I'll begin moving toward my conclusion by inviting you to hear an excerpt of the final paragraph of Arius's book, Championing the Importance of Cells. He writes, wherever you look, at yourself in a mirror, the vista of a forest, anything natural and alive, that is the creation of cells, those master builders, the beating of your heart, your thoughts and emotions, your ability to see, that's linked to neurons, nerve cells. Their electrical activity, their conversations and cooperation, the livelihood and survival of your gut, your blood, your skin, all different types of cells, your ability to move, to write, to grab, to continue to do all of this for a long time, all of that depends on cells. We are all part of an ongoing story that begins with the first eukaryotic cells billions of years ago. And since it's Darwin Day, I want to reserve the very last word to the final paragraph of Darwin's 1859 book, 
on the origin of species. Whereas many scientific um, texts are often dense and jargon-filled and quickly obsolete, I mean, these two books are really good, but probably a decade or two from now, like, no one's going to be reading them anymore. Darwin's books remain widely praised classics uh, for the beauty and clarity of their prose because they're so well-grounded in their close observations of the natural world, and much of his science has not become obsolete because even after more than a century and a half later because it's based on such close observation of the natural world. So I invite you to consider anew these final words for the conclusion to origin. Note that Darwin begins the following paragraph by naming the aspects of life that we humans often perceive as solely negative. And he reframes them. And here's where his scientific genius comes in. He highlights how essential these difficult parts of reality nevertheless are to the natural engine of evolution, of natural selection, of common descent. In Darwin's words, it is from the war of nature. It is from famine and death, right? The war of nature. Nature red in tooth and claw, right? Tennyson said. It is from the war of nature, from famine and death, that the most exalted object of which we are capable of conceiving, the production of higher animals, it's from that war of nature, famine and death, that's what the production of higher animals directly follows. He then adds his most famous observation. There is a grandeur in this view of life, which is so counterintuitive, right? I mean, I grew up as a Southern Baptist, you know, the Scopes Monkey Trial, right? I didn't come from, from monkeys. Like, this is, this is an offensive. No, Darwin is like, there is a grandeur in this view of life, that we're all connected on this tree of life. And whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity from so simple a beginning, you know, that there's first prokaryotic cells into eukaryotic cells, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. That's why people still read Darwin, because he could write. And we continue, so as we continue to navigate our way through the promises and perils of embracing the best of both science and spirituality, of reason and religion in the 21st century, inspired by Darwin and heeding his guidance, heeding the guidance of reason and the results of science, may we continue to support one another in our free and responsible search for truth and meaning. In that spirit, I invite you to rise and body your spirit in your gray hymnals. Let's sing a hymn written out of that very struggle, number 343, a fire mist and a planet. <laughs>